World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In China, as elsewhere, LGBT people have a harder time at work than their peers. We examine a surprisingly liberal court ruling that has drawn attention to the cause. And Japan has 400 inhabited islands and a rapidly aging core of ship captains to reach them. So there's a huge push underway to try to simply do without the old salts. We take a look at the risks and benefits of self-driving ships. But first... Presidential contender Joe Biden made his first campaign appearance with his running mate Kamala Harris yesterday. My fellow Americans, now let me introduce to you, for the first time, your next vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Socially distanced from reporters, Mr. Biden's applause line fell flat, but the message was clear. And let me tell you, as somebody who has presented my fair share of arguments in court, the case against Donald Trump and Mike Pence is open and shut. Mrs. Harris is the first black woman and the first Asian American chosen for a major party national ticket. No sooner was the announcement made than attack ads from President Donald Trump's campaign were released. Slow Joe and phony Kamala, perfect together, wrong for America. But given a vice presidential pick who lies at the Democratic Party's ideological center, Mr. Trump may struggle to find more pointed lines of attack against her. Kamala Harris was both a predictable and a groundbreaking pick. She was groundbreaking, of course, because she is the first African-American woman and the first Asian-American on a major party ticket. John Fasman is The Economist's Washington correspondent. And she's predictable because as soon as Joe Biden announced from the debate stage that he was going to pick a woman as a running mate, she was the clear frontrunner. She was vetted in a national campaign. Kamala Harris has been California's junior senator since 2016. Before that, she was California's attorney general. And before that, she was district attorney for San Francisco. And in addition to being all of those things, she is extremely qualified, has come up through the ranks. So this pick is not a tokenistic pick. It's a recognition that quality can shine in whatever background it comes in. And so after all these weeks of speculation, why do you think uh, Joe Biden landed on, on Kamala Harris as his choice? Well, I think there are two reasons. One of them is that she just had fewer flaws than any other candidate who was in the running. I think Elizabeth Warren was close to Biden in age and was too polarizing a figure. She also could have cost the party a Senate seat because Massachusetts' governor, who would have appointed her replacement, is a Republican. Karen Bass's strong support for Fidel Castro, which he has since renounced, would have made it really hard to win Florida. Stacey Abrams hadn't held office higher than Georgia State House. Susan Rice, too many people who knew her didn't seem to particularly like her. 
And so Harris just had fewer flaws than any of them. The positive reason to choose her is that she is a very talented politician. She has a sort of star quality and magnetism on stage that Joe Biden lacks. And she is a very talented, clinical, relentless debater. She will perform the vice president's traditional job of attacking the opponents really well, I think. I mean, the way that you framed it there, that there are definitely some some echoes in, in terms of the interplay between Joe Biden and, and Barack Obama. I mean, do, do you see a, a relationship developing between the two that's, that has more parallels than that? Well, I think the parallels are hard to miss, right? In both cases, Joe Biden is sort of the staid, mainstream person, the straight man, you might call it, if this were a buddy movie. In 2008, Barack Obama was a completely new kind of presidential candidate, and Biden's choice seemed to be a sort of reassurance both to white voters that Obama was nothing to be scared of and to Washingtonians that he was going to choose someone who really knew how to govern. I think Biden is perhaps looking to capture a bit of that 2008 magic in choosing a groundbreaking vice president. You remember Hillary Clinton in 2016 decided to play it safe and chose Tim Kaine, who is worthy but perhaps a bit dull, and Biden decided to do something different from that. I think he saw the importance of exciting the electorate. The other thing to remember is that Joe Biden is going to be 78 years old in November. If he wins the election, he will be the oldest president ever inaugurated. And he's been very coy about whether he will seek a second term. So I think Harris has to be seen now as a presidential candidate in waiting, whether that's in 2024 or 2028. And what do you think the choice tells you about Joe Biden and and his campaign? I think it speaks fairly well of him, actually. This is someone who went after him really hard on the debate stage. She did not accuse him of being a racist, but she came really, really close. And she really pounded him more than any other candidate on those stages did. And he turned around and decided that she would be a good running mate for him. And so he overlooked that. I think it also shows that he is unworried about his party's left flank. I think there was a lot of pressure for him to choose a Stacey Abrams or an Elizabeth Warren, this pressure from the Democrats far left. And he ignored that. He seems to have decided that the sort of risks of negative partisanship, that Abrams or Warren would be polarizing and would drive some swing voters away, was greater than the risk that Harris would prove unacceptable to the progressive left. I think it shows that he is relying on animus for Donald Trump to motivate the progressive left. But she also compliments him in a sense. Like him, she is an instinctive centrist. Neither of them are terribly ideologically driven. They're both quite comfortable with sort of transactional procedural politics. That is anathema to some on the left, certainly to people who would have preferred the more hortatory style of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. But it sort of shows you where he has landed and where the party has landed. But the question during this whole election cycle until now has been the, the degree to which the entire Democratic Party would be kind of pulled to the left with a, a lot of real progressives on, on the docket before. What do you think it means for the party that a couple of hardcore centrists are the ones on the ticket now? What it suggests to me now is that you have two centrists at the top of the ticket, but they're not sort of doctrinaire centrists. These two candidates will listen to progressives. They understand that there are some positions that change as the party does. But I think it suggests that the leftward flank is a subordinate flank in the party, unlike in the Republican Party, where the sort of the far right flank has taken over. I think this suggests the Democrats see that the Republicans' rightward shift has left the center open, and they have moved to claim the center. And on the matter of Republicans, I mean, what do you think the, the, the Trump campaign will, will make of, of this VP pick? Well, I think that's one reason why it was a smart pick by the Biden camp, right? Because Harris is pretty hard to define. I think if he had picked Elizabeth Warren, then the Trump campaign 
it would have given heft to their argument that the, that the Democrats had become a far left party. I think Harris is really hard to define. And I think you saw that in the Trump campaign's initial statement, calling her phony, which is just about the most generic thing you can think of to lambaste a politician for being. I think it's going to be really hard for the Trump campaign to nail down an effective, specific, coherent attack on Harris. What about her connection with voters, though? Will she get people out to vote for this ticket, do you think? Well, I think there are two conflicting bits of evidence from poli-sci and history. The political science suggests that vice presidential picks tend to not sway voters. So in that sense, the inclination would be to say that her pick really doesn't matter that much, that it's going to be a referendum on the incumbent. The other bit of evidence, though, is that African-American turnout really soared in 2008 and 2012 when there was an African-American candidate on the ticket. So if that holds up, then I think she will be an extremely consequential pick if she drives up African-American turnout, particularly in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Michigan, Florida, all these battleground states that Biden really wants to win. If she helps him there, she will have mattered tremendously. Thanks very much for your time, John. Always a pleasure, Jason. This week, Checks and Balance, our sister podcast on American politics, takes a deep dive into Kamala Harris's political evolution and her policy record as Attorney General of California. And it asks how much vice presidential picks really matter when voters go to the polls. Look for Checks and Balance wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. There are an estimated 4 million transgender people in China. The vast majority will never feel able to come out or legally change their gender. And there are limited legal protections. There are no employment laws protecting LGBT people. I feel like I'm just one of the millions of transgender people in China who will encounter discrimination. Ma Xiao sued her employer when she was dismissed after her transition. I sued my employer because my heart felt angry and sorrow. I worked at the company for a long time, although I'm not a perfect employee. I felt like I was treated differently. In May, Ms. Ma lost her appeal. I think a lot of people may not know about transgender people. That is why I came out and did this lawsuit. But this year, a different suit has had more success, even without anti-discrimination laws. Gao Mo, the trans woman in Beijing, she had a good job as a product director for Dangdang, an e-commerce company. And in 2018, Dangdang allowed her to take some time off for her gender reassignment surgery. Amy Hawkins writes about foreign affairs for The Economist. But less than three months after the surgery, Dangdang fired her for continuous absenteeism, as they called it. But Ms. Gao thought the real reason was transphobia. A court in Beijing agreed with her and ordered Dangdang to restore her contract and pay back overdue wages. That court ruling was in January, but it went viral over the summer and has attracted a lot of attention in Chinese media. Because that's quite an unusual ruling? 
Yes, it's very unusual. Ms. Gao is the first transgender person to win an employment discrimination case in China. As far as we know, only two others have tried. And part of the reason so few people have tried is because LGBT people aren't protected from discrimination in China's employment law. But it does have specific protection for gender-based rights. And if you are a trans person who has legally changed their gender, you're entitled to the same rights as anyone else of that gender, which was the basis for this positive ruling for Ms. Gao in January. Apart from for trans people, for the handful of LGB people who have gone to court saying that they've been unfairly dismissed because of their sexual orientation, the courts are reluctant to even comment on the issue that the law doesn't mention sexual orientation. What they do is they try and cut off the issue of saying there's not enough evidence of discrimination, even though in some cases there seems to be a lot. Judges want to avoid questions with big implications, which would be the case if they did rule that someone had been unfairly dismissed for being gay. So they set the bar for evidence really high. And so how did Ms. Gao get over that bar of evidence? So she got over it by having what you could call smoking gun evidence from Dung Dung. The company misgendered her. They also called her mentally ill. And they said that other colleagues were uncomfortable working with her, particularly regarding things like bathroom access. But the court ruled that because she had legally changed her gender, she was legally female, Dung Dung was obliged to treat her the same as any other female colleague. What was particularly interesting in this case is that the court went beyond just ruling in Ms. Gao's favour. They also issued an unusually liberal statement calling for tolerance and saying that society must respect and protect the personality, dignity and legitimate rights of transgender people. And so given that this has gone virally around China, do you, do you get a sense for how people feel about this ruling? Yeah, so lots of people online have responded to the news positively. But I spoke to one person who works for an LGBT organisation in Beijing and they said, you know, the online commentary doesn't necessarily reflect views on the ground. For example, two thirds of such minorities say they feel pressured to get married and transsexualism is still classified as a mental illness and homosexuality was classified as a mental illness until 2001. And there are some stats to suggest that LGBT people have a hard time in China. For example, only 5% of them come out to their colleagues. And one survey of transgender people specifically found that they had an unemployment rate that was double the national average. And, and what about the Communist Party? Does it, does it have an explicit view on, on transgender issues, transgender rights? They tend not to comment on trans issues specifically, but certainly under Xi Jinping, there's been a renewed emphasis on family values, marriage, having more children and general traditionalism. And obviously that can be seen to exclude a lot of LGBTQ people. And recently the government explicitly rejected a campaign for gay marriage, which some activists had gotten quite hopeful about. And so how to view that, that ruling and, and the commentary that came with it? Do you, do you see a time when the law or, or the party view or the general public view is, is really changing about these issues? Transgender issues outside of this ruling are rarely discussed in official media. Internationally, China makes lots of positive noises about LGBT issues. They made a statement to the UN in 2015 that LGBTI people face some real challenges in terms of social acceptance. And in fact, earlier this year, they made a similar statement to the UN talking about gay conversion therapy, where they said said that they supported LGBT people, but that domestically, they don't really make the same kind of statements. Sometimes international news about trans issues cuts through to Chinese media. So for example, recently, there was a flurry around JK Rowling's blog post on trans people, which made it through to Chinese media. And although that blog post was controversial, some people I spoke to said it was good because it brought trans issues to the forefront in China, which is normally not discussed. 
So do you see things changing for trans people in China anytime soon? Do, do you think Ms. Gao's case could shift the landscape here? I mean, this is definitely a success for the LGBT community in China and activists are very excited about it and working on this issue. People in big cities in China do seem to be more socially liberal than ever before, but it's perhaps not a watershed moment in terms of huge gains for the LGBT population in general. Amy, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. For plenty more analysis from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. I found myself aboard a tanker beside Captain Kuwahara Satoru. We were off the coast of Singapore trying to get from the port into the open water. Noah Snyder is The Economist's Tokyo bureau chief. The ship rocked back and forth as he offered me a turn at the helm. I tried to maneuver us through some congested waters, but set us straight on a collision course. He took the wheel and steered us away from the danger. Then he flipped a switch and the windows went dark. We walked calmly off the simulator and into the offices of Japan Marine Science, a shipping consultancy. So, so what is the purpose of this simulator? So Japan Marine Science built it to help train shipping captains. But nowadays, they're using it to help develop algorithms that will one day help ships steer themselves as well. They're one of many Japanese firms that are investing heavily into developing autonomous shipping technology. Recently, the Nippon Foundation, a philanthropic group, announced a $31 million investment into a consortium that's working to develop the necessary technology. Giant Japanese shipping firms like Mitsui OSK Lines and Nippon Yusen Kaisha have been working on similar efforts since about 2016. And why is it that there's so much effort in this direction in Japan? Well, for Japan, it's a problem of both demography and geography. So Japan has more than 400 inhabited islands, and many of those smaller islands are inaccessible by road. They depend on coastal shipping, and there are fewer and fewer transport options to reach them nowadays. And that gets us to the problem of demography. More than half of the 21,000 mariners in Japan's coastal shipping industry are over 50 years old. In fact, more than a quarter of them are over 60 years old. So this aging force of ship operators, crewmen, captains, and seafarers is dwindling, and shipping firms are having a hard time recruiting young folks to join their ranks. The work is physically demanding. It often requires long stretches away from home. And as one young captain pointed out to me, there's no internet at sea. And so the idea here is is to use the simulator to, to get towards autonomous ships? Exactly. Though there is some ongoing debate about what autonomous would mean when it comes to ships. Some speak of fully crewless ships. Others speak of using technology, artificial intelligence, augmented reality to help assist human navigators. So, for example, some of these uh, shipping firms are experimenting with algorithms that help flag potential collisions for navigators. Some 70% of accidents at sea are believed to be caused by human error. As one shipping executive told me, computers don't get tired. 
But we have become familiar with the limitations of this kind of technology when it comes to to roads, right, with autonomous cars. Surely ships present the same kinds of risks, trade-offs? Some of the same kinds of risks, but some unique risks as well. As ship captains are, are quick to point out, there are no roads at sea. So the amount of potential moves or the, or the directions that a ship can go are vastly greater than those that, that uh, cars have to deal with. At sea, you're also obviously facing hazards from weather to whales to small sailboats that can throw algorithms for a loop. There's also a set of challenges having to do with communications technology. So how do you maintain uh, high-speed connections uh, necessary to run this technology when you're in the deep seas. One Japanese shipping firm I spoke to reckons that communications technology at sea lags about 15 years behind technologies on land. But it sounds like fully crewless ships are still some, some time off. Absolutely. It'll be a while before we get aboard a cruise ship without a captain. And beyond the technology itself, there's also the barrier of human psychology. As Mr. Kuwahara put it to me, if driverless cars seem spooky, imagine being at sea aboard a captainless cruise ship. Thanks very much for your time, Noah. Thanks, as always, for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. This is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.